It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. The time has come. Rivalries have ended. The knives have been put away. And all those who think you should celebrate Christmas in November and everyone else who is wrong have come together. At last, in agreement, as we look towards this holiday season. Hey guys, welcome to The Grove. My name is Caleb, one of the pastors here. Um, and as we move into this Christmas season, um, or this Advent season, as you've heard referenced throughout the service, uh, we take time every year, these four weeks before Christmas, um, to anticipate Christ's second coming as we look back and reflect on his first coming. That's what that word Advent means. It's from the Latin word Adventus. It means coming or arrival. And that's the whole purpose of this season. Uh, it's to reflect on the first coming of Jesus, but not simply that, but to also look for and long for his second coming, his second arrival, his second advent. And as we do that, we'll be finishing up our study in the book of Exodus. Uh, so this final series, we're, we're calling Dwell, but it's really just finishing up the book of Exodus as we look at the final five verses. That's what we're going to be doing over the next four weeks, is looking at the final five verses in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. So we'll look at 34 today, 35 next week, 36 and 37 the next week, and then 38 finally um, on, uh, in four weeks. So that's kind of where we're going and with this series uh, but in order, I think, as we look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 this morning, some of you uh, who may be astute and are um, a little OCD may go, but wait, Caleb, we skipped 35 all the way up to 40. And not only that, Caleb, do you remember a few weeks ago, we skipped chapter 31. What are we going to do? Great question. We're going to cover it at a 40,000 foot view as we get started. And as we get ready for chapter 40, verse 34, I actually think it's important for us to see not just the story in those chapters, Exodus 31 and then Exodus 35 through 40, but to remember and remind ourselves what the whole book of Exodus is about. And so what I want to do starting today is uh, look at that question, look at a 40,000 foot view of the book of Exodus as a whole, because I think it helps us understand the significance and the weight of the verse we're looking at this morning. And so Isaac, if you heard last week, Isaac Adam, Adams preached, and he preached on one word. Uh, well, I'm going to preach on the whole book of Exodus this morning, so the exact opposite. Um, he gave us a sea level view, ground level view. We're looking at 40,000 uh, feet today. But I think it's important because if we are not careful, I think we can get distracted in the book of Exodus. I think we can miss what the book of Exodus is about. Because if you've grown up in church, you've probably seen some of these scenes, right? What do you think about when you think about the book of Exodus? What are things that pop into your mind immediately? The Red Sea dividing. Maybe the golden calf. The burning bush. The famous scene where Charlton Heston brings down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai. I give enough Marvel references, I have to give one Charlton rest, uh, Heston reference every now and then. You have these enormous stories in the book of Exodus, the Passover. I mean, some of the biggest stories in the Bible, all right here in the book of Exodus. The Ten Commandments, you have so many things. But I think all of those are not, none of those are the point of the book of Exodus. I think the book of Exodus is about God dwelling with his people. 
And why do I say that? Well, I want to walk through the book of Exodus and show you why. Again, when we look at it from up here, I think you'll see it as well. So as we look at our verse this morning, I first want to ask, where is Exodus moving us towards? As we look at Exodus as a whole, where is Exodus moving us towards? After that, then I'll, we'll ask how Exodus, how does Exodus connect with Advent? Why are we talking about this at Christmas? Shouldn't we be talking about mangers and sweet animals and nativities? And I don't know why those are the scenes of the nativity. I, I imagine if animals were at any of the birth of my children, it wouldn't be sweet. I don't think that would be like, oh, that's so precious. Look at the dirt and the, the animals. This is awesome. I don't think that was the scene. But anyway, we've romanticized it. There it is. But why are we talking about Exodus? Why are we talking about a tabernacle? We should be talking about the manger. It's Christmas. So why does, how does Exodus connect with Advent? That's the second question we'll ask. And then third, why does it matter? That's kind of where we're going this morning. So first, where is Exodus moving us towards? 40,000 foot view. If you've got notes, you can take them. If not, I'll have this whole outline on the screen. So feel free to just take a picture whenever it's all up there. Um, if you don't want to scribble ferociously. Um, so where is Exodus moving us towards? As we've said mo uh, multiple times, the book of Exodus is broken up into really two different books. There's chapters 1 through 18 leading up to Mount Sinai, and then chapters 19 through 40 at Mount Sinai. There are two books. Book 1, I would summarize this way. Here's the point of book 1, saved from Egypt. That's book 1. In that, you have the very beginning, chapters 1 and 2, the prologue. All the introductory information. How did Israel get to Egypt? How did they become enslaved? Why is Pharaoh killing these children? How is Moses saved? How did Moses get raised in, uh, in Pharaoh's courts? Why is he gone now? All of that's that introductory information in chapters 1 and 2. Then in chapters 3 and 4, you get the call. You get the call where God shows up to Moses in that burning bush. And he tells him what he's going to do. So God was preparing the way in chapters 1 and 2. Then he calls Moses, chapters 3 and 4. Then you get the confrontation in chapters 5 through 14. This is Moses against Pharaoh. Him calling them out, Pharaoh making their work harder, uh, the ten plagues, all happen in these chapters. You have this confrontation. And I, I want so badly to sing the confrontation in Les Mis for any musical fans out there, but I'm withholding myself because I've already sung one too many songs today. But this is the confrontation. And then after the confrontation, you get finally then the end of the confrontation at the Red Sea where Israel's freed on the other side of the Red Sea. Egypt is swallowed up by the sea. And then they wander through the wilderness for these uh, four chapters. They're attacked by different nations. They don't have anything to eat. They don't have anything to drink. Um, God is caring for them through manna, through water from the rock as they walk through the wilderness. This is the book one. And all of it is summed up in this way, that they are saved from Egypt. That's the, that's the thrust. So a theme verse I would put in that section is from Exodus 9, verses 15 and 16. This is in the middle of the plagues. Here's what God says. God says this. He says, by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. God's speaking to Pharaoh, and he's telling them, hey, I didn't need 10 plagues to get warmed up to get to the good one. Why did God use 10? God could have just... He didn't even snap his fingers. He didn't need an infinity gauntlet. He could have just obliterated them. There's our Marvel reference for the day. <laughs> Why did he use 10 plagues? Well, here's the reason. Here's what's happening in this book. He said, however, I have let you live for this purpose. Now, here's the purpose. To show you my power, talking to Egypt, and to make my name known on the whole earth. This was the purpose. 
God, in the very first way in the Bible so far, in human history, is stepping onto the scene and showing them who the Creator is and who stands above creation and who is the King of the universe. He is making His name known on the whole earth. So here is the point of this first book, that they were saved from Egypt. Here's the point in this sentence. For His glory expressed through His judgment and His redemption. This is what's happening. His glory is expressed through his judgment in Egypt and his redemption of Israel as he delivers them. And his name is known on the whole earth. Even as we talk about missions and engagement, you see the way in which God from the very beginning, again, has a global mission for his name to be known on the whole earth. His glory expressed through his judgment and his redemption. That's book one. Then they get to Mount Sinai in chapter 19. We turn now to book two. And book two is is summed up this way, that they are saved to God. Book one, saved from Egypt. Book two, saved to God. God did not just deliver them from Egypt and go, okay, way to go. You guys, I think you've got it now. Good luck. Go do whatever you want to do. Eat, drink, be merry. No, God then saved them to himself. He enters into a relationship with them. The, the, the biblical word is a covenant. A covenant with them. This promised relationship. And all this happens around this mountain. Mount Sinai. Chapter 19 is the preparation. The people preparing to meet God. And then chapter 20, verse 1 through 21, you get the Ten Commandments. The Ten Words. Uh, again, some of the most famous parts of the Bible. Then in chapter 20, verse 22, all the way to 24, 18, the end of chapter 20, uh, 24, you have the old covenant. This is both the book of the covenant and the covenant ceremony where God enters into this old covenant with the people of Israel, this covenant relationship. So when you hear in the Bible, the old covenant, new covenant, uh, old covenant is what's described in these chapters. If you're with our uh, Sunday evening Bible study through Hebrews this year, all this reference of the old covenant was here in chapter 24. Now we get to the end of 24 and there's still 16 chapters left. And guess what the rest of the book is about? It's about a tent. From here on out, it's about the tabernacle. And here's the emphasis, the main thrust of the whole latter half of the book is not what Israel must do, but it's where God will live. And this is where we can get lost in Exodus and think, oh, it's so, it's just so tedious. There's all these laws. There's all these instructions, even with the tabernacle. Why are we talking so much about yarn? What is happening? And we get lost in it. We get in the weeds. So I want to lift us up and see God is giving so much of the book to the instruction for how to build his house. Why? Because he wants to dwell with and among his people. And so it's not, again, it's not about what Israel must do. It's not primarily about laws, but about where God will live. The last 16 chapters. So in chapters 25 through 31, you have the instructions of the tabernacle. God is giving the instructions for how it will be built. I think even under this, we have a sub-outline. Coming up maybe? There, get ready for the sub-outline. Here in 25 through 31. I told you, don't take notes, just take pictures. Chapter 25, 1 through 8 is the funding of the tabernacle. How's it going to be paid? 25, 9 through 27, 21 is the instructions of the tabernacle. Well, how's it going to be built? What are the dimensions? 28 through 30 are the priests of the tabernacle. And 31 is the builders of the tabernacle. Who are the actual individuals who are going to build it? 
So if you've got your Bibles and you're flipping through, you'll see these headings in there. And just wanting to give you categories for what's happening here. God in these chapters is telling his people, here are the blueprints. Here's my house. Here are the plans. And then you get to chapter 35 through 39, and there's some, some of the prefabrication begins to, to go underway. The prefabrication of the tabernacle. Again, sub-outline, because you'll see it's the same categories. And this is one of the reasons why we're skipping this section, because it's so repetitive from what we've already covered. You have the funding of the tabernacle in chapter 35, 1 through 29. You have the builders of the tabernacle in 35, 30 through 36, 7. You have the prefabrication of the tabernacle, 36, 8 through 38, 31. So God gave the instructions. Now the builders are actually making it. Before they put it together, they're constructing it. And that's what's happening in these chapters. And then finally, the priests of the tabernacle, chapter 39. They're making everything that the priests need from what God had previously said. Those are two lists for the tabernacle we get here. There's four lists total. The third one, again, very repetitive in chapter 40, 1 through 16, is the organization of the tabernacle. God, now that the tabernacle has been made and not put together, God is giving the way in which it will be put together. What goes first, on what day, how should it be organized? God gives that in chapter 41 through 16. And finally, in chapter 40, 17 through 33, you have the construction of the tabernacle. It's actually put together. The ops team shows up at 730 and they put up the pipe and drape. That's chapter 40, verses 17 through 33. And you may go, why are we talking so much about this? Because I want you to hear how much God talks about it in this book. And I want you to see the emphasis in the book of Exodus. It's on the tent. It's on the house. It's on the place that God will dwell. At the very beginning of all this with the tabernacle, the theme verse for the tabernacle is back at the very beginning in chapter 25. And when we went through it, I told you, highlight it, underline it, mark it, square it, circle it, asterisk it. Whatever you need to do. Because here's where we see the heart of God in the book of Exodus. Chapter 25, verse 8. They are to make a sanctuary for me. A tabernacle. Why? What's the purpose? Here's the purpose. So that I may dwell among them. And then, 16 chapters on the tabernacle. And then it gets us up to where we are Today, this is where God is moving towards. He's wanting not just his glory to be expressed, but now for his glory to be experienced. And this is the theme of the second book, that his glory experienced through his dwelling and his presence. Book one, his glory is expressed through his judgment and his redemption. Book two, his glory is experienced through his dwelling and his presence. These people not only see how great God is, they begin to experience how great God is. Why? Because he's living among them. He's dwelling with them. These final 16 chapters are dedicated to the details of God moving in to the tabernacle and in with his people. Again, we can get caught up in so much of the logistics. We can get through the covenant ceremony and we're like, oh my goodness, this feels so archaic what's happening here. But I want you to see, God makes a covenant with his people right there in chapter 20 through 24. And then what's he do after that covenant? He then moves in with his people. A couple weeks ago, I officiated a wedding with a couple friends here of our church, Lucas and Olivia. What did we do? I officiated a covenant ceremony between them and they then moved in together. Guys, that really sums up Exodus 20 through 40. God had this covenant ceremony with his people here. And then he moved in with them. 
He's now dwelling among them. Now, again, if, if you're taking very close notes and not just trying to take pictures, you may go, Caleb, you left out three chapters. What about Exodus 32, 33, and 34? What about that? You said tabernacle, but that, that's nothing tabernacle about that. Well, very astute, but I want you to look. If you got your Bibles, I want you to open. I want you to see this. If you look at the very end of chapter 31, right there at the very end of chapter 31, in verses 12 through 17, God is giving instructions for the Sabbath. And down at verse 17, I want you to read that. It is a sign forever, talking about the Sabbath, it's a sign forever between me and the Israelites. For on six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Now I want you to hold your place right there. I want you to skip 32, 33, and 34. And I want you to look at 35.1 and start reading. Moses then assembled. God told Moses that on Sinai there in 31. So now 35. Moses assembled the entire Israelite community and said to them, These are the things the Lord has commanded you to do. For six days, work is to be done. But on the seventh day, you are to have a holy day, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. And anyone who does not, who does work on it must be executed. Now, do you see, it's almost like 32, 33, and 34 don't even exist. It goes seamlessly from the end of 31 to the beginning of 35. It's like this interruption in these three chapters. And what's the interruption? The interruption is sin. The interruption is the golden calf in 32. The interruption is for the very first time, God's plan to dwell among his people seems to be threatened. The reader's on the edge of their seat going, okay, is this going to work out now? And I want to just, I cannot help but pause here. Because as you read through the book of Exodus, think about the threats of the people of Israel so far. You had the nation of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. And Pharaoh, with everything he had against these slave people, not a threat to the Lord. You then had these nations as they were wandering through the wilderness. They were picking off and killing the women and some of the older, um, older people and people who were sick and the children in the back. And Israel goes and fights them. Guess what? It's not a problem for the Lord. There's no threat there. The very first time we see this plan in jeopardy, the threat is not outside of the camp. It's inside of the camp. It's sin by the people of Israel. It's idolatry as they build this golden calf and their hearts begin to turn back to Egypt and away from the Lord. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we are all the same. We have that same tendency. And so I just, I, I highlight that because there's so much discourse right now about all the threats that are out there. All the threats that are outside the church. And we just need to realize that to our sovereign king, he knows no such thing as a threat. There is no barrier to his plan. The most powerful nation was no problem to him because he created them. He holds kings in his hand. The problem and the focus, the primary focus of his people should be the same for us today in our church, should be what's happening inside the camp. Our sin, our closeness to Jesus, our relationship to him, that is a greater barrier than what's outside. And that's the interruption we have here in 32, 33, and 34. And God's response to that sin, to the interruption of sin, is the revelation of his grace. As he reveals his name as a compassionate God who's slow to anger. And we jump right back into the story in 35. And God commences his plan to move in and dwell with his people. So you get here to the end of 40, in verse 33, and the house 
has been built. The tabernacle is made, but it's vacant. If you're here, I know a couple people here are building homes right now. You're here at the very end of the process. Maybe your house is totally built, but you're still in the apartment complex down by Walmart. It's vacant right now. That's what's happening here at the very end. Here in 40 verse 33, Moses set up the surrounding courtyard for the tabernacle and altar, hung a screen for the gate of the courtyard, and Moses finished the work. Verse 33, but the house is vacant. And the whole point of this book, again, wasn't for God to build a house. It was for God to dwell among his people. Make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. And that gets us to our verse today. So what happens in verse 35? Look and read with me. Or verse 34, excuse me. Look and read with me. The cloud, God's presence, his glory, cover the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord then filled the tabernacle. And what happens in this moment is God moves in. His glory and his presence then fills and dwells in his house. He is now among his people. Now, there's so much else that's happening here. Certainly, it's a, a sign of God's presence among his people. It's a sign of his glory dwelling amongst his people. But again, primarily, it is the fulfillment of his plan all along to be with his people, to live with them, to dwell among them. And this is what it was always moving towards. The same thing happens whenever Israel eventually gets to the promised land. They sit up in Israel. They um, set up the capital city in Jerusalem. David's sitting there as a king with a unified kingdom. And he's going, you know what? We need something nicer for God. He's been in a tent, but like, we're good now. Like, we're here. Let's build him a house, a nice house. I'm in a palace. Why is he in a tent? The second Samuel 7, and God's like, hey, no, no, no. You're not building a tent for me. You're not building a house for me. Your son will. And he goes, there's so much other in 2 Samuel 7. I almost went off on a tangent, but I stopped myself. I'm going to build a house for you. And sure enough, David's son, Solomon, builds this temple. And when Solomon dedicates the temple in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 and 11, here's what happens whenever the temple is dedicated. When the priest came out of the holy place, the cloud filled the Lord's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You hear the same language because the same thing had happened. The temple has now just replaced the tabernacle. It's a permanent dwelling for God among his people. And his glory filled that temple. And it remained that way all through Israel, all the way up until exile in Ezekiel chapter 10, where Ezekiel has this vision of God's glory leaving the temple. And sure enough, Babylon comes in, exiles Jerusalem uh, exiles Israel. They go into captivity. They rebuild the temple, but it's not the same. And we don't have this moment again where the cloud comes and fills the temple, where God's glory fills the temple. And so as you read through the Bible, you get to Ezekiel, you get to the minor prophets, you get to the second temple, and you're wondering, has God's plan failed? Is God not able to dwell in and among his people? Now that gets us into our second question. Why in the world are we talking about this at Christmas? And how does Exodus connect with Advent? Because as you read through the Old Testament, you then turn the page to the New Testament. And whenever you have that in the back of your mind, is God going to dwell among his people? It seemed like that's what he was doing in Exodus. 
of working that way into the temple, but then the temple's destroyed and his presence leaves. Is the plan over? But then you see what Ray read earlier in John chapter 1, John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. The word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. God's plan re-engaged. Stepping into this world and again dwelling and living among his people. That word in the Greek, dwelt, literally means tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us. God became flesh. Jesus picks up on this theme later in John, the very next chapter. In chapter 2, verse 19, he then compares himself to the temple. The religious elite in that day were all upset with things Jesus was saying. They're like, hey, what sign are you going to do to show us that you're actually going to be able to, to do this stuff? And Jesus said, John chapter 2, verse 19, okay, destroy this temple. He turns around and points to Herod's temple, this huge temple now that's been rebuilt after the second temple. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they look at him and like, hey, you know, you know it took 46 years to build that, right? You know that? You're a guy. You can't do it in three days. I didn't understand what he was saying. But what was Jesus saying? Do you hear the point that Jesus was making? He wasn't talking about the building. What was he talking about? Well, it says right afterwards that after Jesus was raised, his disciples remembered that he'd said this. And they went, oh, he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his body. He's talking about him. The temple's destroyed, but he's raised three days later and Jesus rebuilt it. What is he trying to say? He's saying in the truest sense, the tabernacle and the temple were things that were pointing to him as the full realization of God's promise to dwell among his people. The tabernacle and the temple were never meant to last forever. They were all pointing us to the truer picture of Christ himself. That he's the great tabernacle. He's the great temple. And on that first Christmas, God came and dwelt among his people. And in Exodus 40, what did they do whenever God came and dwelt among his people? Well, his glory filled the tabernacle and they observed his glory. They saw that cloud descend and rest on that tent. And they saw the glory of God. And what happened on that first Christmas when Jesus was born? The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God's presence among his people. God dwelling among us. Leah and I got a chance to again, go to Israel a few years ago. There were a number of things that broke my heart. One, the way in which people have co-opted some of the sites there to try to just take advantage of people and make money. Other times where things honestly felt almost demonic with things that we saw and with the way people worshiped things rather than worshiping God. But there's another scene that broke my heart as we went to Jerusalem. And we went to where there's the, still the remnants of the temple that exists. You can still see the foundation stones. And when you see these stone, one foundation stone that's there, you understand why these people looked at Jesus and were like, what, you're going to do what in three days? I mean, these stones are about the size of the stage, one of them, and they're stacked on top of each other like a Jenga puzzle. It took 46 years to build it. And they're like, yeah, 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 you ain't doing this in three days. Well, we went, and there's still the remnants then of some of the, the temple that exists there. 
And the Jewish people can't go onto the court because it's now uh, a mosque and they're not able to enter there uh, on the courts on top. What they can do is go to the outskirts of the wall. And there's one place on the western side of the wall where they understand and know the way in which the temple was laid out, that there is a place on the western wall where they are the, able to get the closest to where the physical location of the Holy of Holies was, where God's presence dwelt there amongst their people. And this is what's known as the western wall or the wailing wall. And it's, it's known by that name because of the cries that you hear at, the, at that wall. As the Jewish men and women are there crying out for God to come back, to rebuild the temple, and to dwell among them again. Praying and writing prayers and putting them into the cracks. And it broke my heart because I'm sitting there looking at the longing for God to return. And I go, oh, he already has. The temple's been rebuilt, but it's not going to be here. You've missed what this was pointing towards all along. God's plan was never to be confined to a room. It was to be with his people. And we see it most clearly at that Christmas. As Jesus came to dwell among his people. So that you could know God, live with him, and not have to travel to Jerusalem to experience him. You can experience him in this seat. That's the other reason. It's great to go to Jerusalem, but listen, you get no less of God never having traveled there. It's not the way God works. He dwells amongst his people today. That's how Exodus connects to Advent. The heart of God revealed in Exodus was what? To dwell among his people. That's why I want to highlight. We see the whole story. And that heart is fully realized at Christmas, at Advent, as the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So I want to close with asking, two, with, with asking this question. Why does it matter? You may go, okay, Caleb, that's helpful. It's helpful for me to understand my Bible, to understand the book of Exodus. That's good. And that is helpful. It's part of the goal today. But you may be going, okay, but when I walk out that door, how does my, what does that do in my life? How does this affect me? How does this begin to engage with the hardships of this world? I'll walk back out there and I've got to walk into hospitals where loved ones are. I have to walk back into a family, a marriage. It's deteriorating. How, what does this have to do? Why does this matter? Now, there's a million ways in which this matters, but we're just going to talk about two of them. Why does this matter? First, I think that we see in all of this, all through Exodus and in Advent, that first Christmas, we see that God meets with us. God meets with us. You see that in our verse in chapter 40, verse 34. Did you hear the other name for the tabernacle? This is good. If you're ever on Jeopardy and they ask this question, you can say it. Because a couple weeks ago, Jeopardy asked a Bible question and it was wrong. Ask who the author of Hebrews was. They said Paul. They, they obviously didn't attend our Hebrews Bible study. So if they have this on Jeopardy and they actually get it right, you'll be able to answer. What's the other name for the tabernacle? Chapter 40, verse 34. Look at it. The cloud covered what? The tent of meeting. This is the other name for the tabernacle. Part of the reason why is it expresses what God was doing. God is not just coming to build a house. He's not just going, oh, you know what? This looks like a nice neighborhood. God is coming to do what? To meet with his people. He's coming to know them. He's coming to live among them and he's coming so that they can know him. And so don't get distracted in the book of Exodus by the miracles. 
Don't get bogged down by the laws and all the instructions. See the heart of God for his people in the book of Exodus. And here's the heart of God. He wants to meet with his people and he's going to make a way for it to happen. He wants them to know him and he wants to dwell with them. Because God is a personal God and he's come to meet with his people. Now here's why this matters. Because there may be people here, maybe you've grown up in church, maybe you've been coming here for years, or I don't know what your background is. Maybe you come in here and you're like, oh yeah, I know God. I meet with him. Yeah, I know God. He's personal to me. But I want to make sure we understand what it means to really know somebody. Because I think sometimes we can get this confused. My wife and I right now are watching the TV show, The Voice, where there's four judges and people sing behind them. They can't see them. And if they like The Voice, they'll press a button and turn around. They're like, I want you on my team. They all get different people that sing. They compete. And who's going to win? It's a great reality show. There it is. So go watch The Voice. Well, Leah's favorite contestant is this guy named Omar. The reason why it's her favorite contestant is because she knew him long before The Voice. See, he's he's been an entertainer at Disney World for years. Whenever Lee and I would go, we'd go to Epcot, and anytime he would sing, she would go crazy. She would go early, get seats like right up front. He's singing, just incredible. His range is unreal. And he's as talented as he sounds. I mean, his audition, all four judges turned their terror around. It was a huge fight. John Legend ended up getting on his team, and he's currently potentially the favorite to win in the final 13. So go watch The Voice and vote for Omar. There it is. But Leah loves this guy. I mean, like, when he was at Disney, followed him on Instagram, would show our friends, like, hey, did you see this performance from, listen to him singing Let It Go a couple nights ago. Isn't this amazing? She knew uh, his family history, that his brother, who's also an entertainer at Disney, would see the way uh, in which they would sing together and long for our children to sing like that together one day. And knew all about him. So then whenever he gets on The Voice, she's like, this is it. I've known it. I've said all along, he's incredible. And now the world's going to get to see it. And sure enough, I mean, he's sweeping the show by a storm. So we were telling um, a couple weeks ago, we had some of our friends, and Leah's describing, we're talking about The Voice, and Leah goes, hey, so you guys have got to watch. My friend is on the show. (laughs) And I looked at her. What's your definition of a friend, Liam? He doesn't know who you are. You know that, right? If he saw you, you are a stranger to him. We need to work on what a friend means. You know a lot about him, but you don't know him. Friends, I wonder, do you know a lot about God? Or do you know him? There is a huge difference between the two. But it's easy to confuse them. We can come to church every Sunday. We can study our Bibles and spit out the outline of Exodus like it's nobody's business. We can tell you all the theological and doctrinal positions. We can have everything in order. But that is not the point. To not know about him but to know him because God is a personal God and he has come to meet with you. He's not simply here for you to learn true things about him. He's here to meet you 
This is what we see in the book of Exodus. This is what we see at the first Christmas. God is interested in a relationship to know you and to be known by you. Friends, do you know him? Do you know his heart? Are you moved by his friendship? Are you amazed by his grace? Do you open the Bible looking for more nuances about who he is and what he's like and what he's done? Or is Christianity just a part of your life? Gets a slice of your life. Maybe when you're not busy, get some Sunday mornings. Or do you know him? This is why it matters, because God has come to meet with us. And friends, let me just tell you, the Christian life will not last simply knowing about God. That doesn't get you through hard times. It doesn't get you through suffering. It doesn't get you through those deepest battles against sin. It doesn't get you through pressures from the culture, from the world, or even pressures and culture from the church. Do you know what withstands all of that? Knowing Christ. Knowing Him. This is what Paul said in Philippians 3.8. I consider everything to be a loss. All of it in view of what? In view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And I love the language that he uses. He says that everything, I count all of it as loss. Why? Because I found something that's more valuable. Because of not just something that's more valuable, but because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Uh, when I know him, whenever I am in a relationship with him, whenever I am in his presence, nothing can compare to that. No sickness and no gift. No low and no high. The greatest thing that I have is knowing him. That's the surpassing value. And that's what we see in Exodus and is what we see in Christmas. God has come to meet with you. So friends, do not be uh, satisfied with simply knowing about God. The demons know a lot more about God than you do. They are great theologians, but they don't love him. That's the difference. Friends, don't be satisfied with simply knowing about God, but know him because he meets with us. This is what we see. And secondly, not only do we see that he meets with us, we also see he relates to us. What we see here in Exodus 40, 34, and the first Christmas is that he relates to us. Again, look back at that name for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. We looked at the emphasis on meeting. What's the other word? You got a 50-50 shot here. Tent, not of. That's right, Tent. Tent. I want to take that and just hold it up for a minute. When God gave instruction for his people to build him a house, he didn't give them instructions for an ivory tower. He didn't give them instructions for some elaborate castle. What did he give them instructions for? A tent. God lived in the exact same thing that his people lived in. A tent. He experienced what they did, the same experience, and he related to them. But at that first Christmas, God didn't move into a tent. He moved into skin. He became flesh. He moved into the human experience. He moved into suffering. He moved into temptation. 
He moved into being betrayed by one of his closest friends. He moved into crying tears. He moved into death. Both death around him and his own. God became a man. Took on flesh and was born. He was a baby. And friends, we could hold God in our hands. I think sometimes we move past the babyhood of God. When Jesus was born, he was a baby. We've got lots of babies around here. It's apparently our church growth strategy. <laughs> that every baby you see, especially over the next four weeks, look and imagine God in that same state. He wasn't, he wasn't born and walking around quoting the Torah. He cried. He needed his diaper changed. He was tired and needed to sleep, especially when he skipped his naps. This was God. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, put it this way. He said, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement or in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. It is here in the thing that happened at that first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of Christian revelation lie. The Word became flesh. God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. And the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. And friends, if you're here and you're exploring Christianity, or maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you have doubts or skepticism, I want you to, to hear in the message of Christmas and over these next four weeks, I want you to see one of the distinct things about Christianity from every other world religion. You don't find this in any religion. And you don't find this, again, even in other stories of fiction. The way in which God does not stay removed from his people who've rebelled against him, but he steps into the story to redeem them. He experiences their life. He walks through what it's like to be a human, not leaving his divinity, but being fully man and fully God to be able to save his people for himself. This is what we see in the incarnation. And again, you won't see this anywhere in any other religion. As God became a man and can now relate to us. In Exodus, when the people walked out of their tents and they saw the cloud fall on the tent, again, it fell on a house like theirs. And they saw a God who was living among them and living like them. Well, friends, this Christmas season, when you approach the manger, you won't approach an Isaiah 6 kind of experience where Jesus is in this throne room and the, his robe fills the temple and there's smoke everywhere and angels are singing his glory and the foundations of the earth are shaking and it's so different and other. No, whenever you come and you see a manger, you won't see grandeur and light and all the beauty of heaven. You will see a baby. You will see God made flesh. You'll see dirt. You'll see animals. You'll see a child that needs to be fed. A child that will grow up. 
a God who will experience what you've experienced. And you will see that what God did at Christmas is he gave up all the beauty of heaven so that you could have it. But you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. I think the hymn writer captures it so well. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. Thrones for a manger. Sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. Glory for suffering. The praise of angels for the betrayal of friends. A crown for a cross. This is what Jesus gave on that first Christmas. Whenever he came to dwell among his people. And he knows what this world holds. He's felt it. Friends, the Bible describes him as our sympathetic high priest. Hebrews 4 says, We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And because of that, we can then boldly approach the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in our greatest time of need. Do you hear what God is saying there in Hebrews? He's saying that your God sympathizes with your weakness both your temptation and your pain. He can relate to you. Why? Because he's walked the road before you. The pain that you feel, he's felt pain. The temptation that you feel, friends, he has been tempted. This is what we see in Christmas as a God who relates to us. And we know that as you walk through something, you go to someone who's gone through it before. There's a different way that you can relate to them. There's a different way that they can understand what you're going through. If you're going through a, a difficulty, if you're going through divorce, if you're going through a cancer diagnosis, you go to those who have walked through it before because there's a, a connection that happens there with those people. God's hardwired this in. that he, he comforts us in suffering so that we can comfort those when others go through it. Friends, here's what that means for Christmas is that the, as you walk through this world and you walk through the difficulties of life, when you approach God, understand that you approach a God who has felt that pain as well. You have a God who can sympathize with you, who understands you. In the gospel, you're never misunderstood. Friends, this world will misunderstand you. Your friends or your family may misunderstand you. Your job may misunderstand you, but every time you come to Jesus, he knows you perfectly. He knows your heart. He knows your struggles. He knows your temptation. He knows your weaknesses, and he sympathizes with you. He relates to you. God not only meets with us, but he relates to us. This is what we see in Exodus and in Advent. Here in our verse, God's glory filled the tabernacle, and he came to dwell with his people. Centuries later, his glory filled the manger as he came again to dwell with us. And one day, he will return once more. And guess what the result of that second coming of Jesus will be? Revelation 21.3 says this. 
Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. And he will live with them. God's heart hasn't changed. From Exodus to Christmas to his second coming. God is making a way to live with his people forever. His plan is the same from Exodus to Christmas to Revelation. God desires to dwell among his people and live with them forever. And the great culmination of the experience of his people is on that day, in Revelation 22, when we will see his face. Christmas was a taste of what's to come. And it's been his heart all along as God desires to dwell with his people. Let's pray.